Hey, I talked to someone on the way in this morning who, um, this is their first time ever being at a church service, okay? And so for the benefit of that person and maybe even some others, I wanted to let you know that what we're about to do now, this is called the sermon. And a sermon, if you're wondering what in the world that is, it's really pretty simple. A sermon is a celebration and application of truth. It's, it's really that simple. A sermon is a celebration and application of what's true. And we believe that we can find what's true in this book that I have in my hands. This is called the Bible. We believe that the Bible is God's true word to us. God cannot lie, and he has given us his mind. He's given us what's true in this book, and that the theme of this book, the purpose of this book is to reveal Jesus Christ to us and our need of him. And so we open up this book week by week to both celebrate and apply what's true. So in one sense, we celebrate it. That's why sometimes when I'm preaching and I'm I'm reading out of the book and I'm talking about the book, that's why sometimes I get really excited and sometimes I cry. And sometimes I use big hand gestures because I'm celebrating what's true. And you are likewise celebrating in your heart and on your face what's true. I, I know that one of the greatest longings and joys of our hearts is to sit in a room and hear someone declare with joy things that are true about Jesus. It just makes our heart rejoice to hear what's true about this beautiful Savior. And so we're celebrating what we find here. And we're applying what we find here. That's why sometimes I get really serious and sometimes I might even like borderline yell or just, or maybe like push into an area of your life which is a little bit uncomfortable because then we're working on that application point of, hey, this is, our life needs to change based on this truth, okay? So it's both celebration and it's application. This is the sermon time, all right? So if you're wondering, that's what's happening now. Now, I'm gonna direct everyone to turn to a particular part of this book, Luke chapter nine. So if you've got a Bible with you, Luke is toward the back of the Bible and all the chapters are numbered. We're at Luke nine, verse 18. We're working our way through this book and we've made it to chapter nine. Chapter 12 will be um, about halfway. So we're, we're not quite halfway. But we've taken time to notice that the theme of the gospel of Luke is the kingdom of God. And so we're taking a long time to just learn what is this kingdom like? That's the question that we've been asking all the way through and the question that we'll keep asking. What is it like to live in the kingdom of God? And we've taken time to notice so far um, some of the values of this kingdom and the priorities of this kingdom. But one thing we haven't talked about too much yet is the king, the king himself. Jesus Christ is the king of this kingdom. And what we see happen here in the text that we're going to read today is that Jesus himself, like his identity, uh, comes front and center in this passage. Who he is, the person who's proclaiming this kingdom, who is he? That's the question before us today. Who is Jesus? Who do others say that he is? 
Who do you say that he is? Who do you want him to be? And what if he's not who you want him to be? Let's read the text first. We've only got five verses in front of us, and then I'd like to pray, and then we'll get in to the text, and we'll dive into this question of Jesus' identity, okay? Now, if you're able to stand this morning for the reading of the word, I want to invite you to do that. We'll read verses 18 through 22. Luke nine eighteen. Now, it happened that as he was praying alone, so that's Jesus, as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man, and he's referring to himself there, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And now, Father, we ask that you would help us to understand these things. We have a lot of questions about what we just read. There are some things here that are hard to understand. Um, I pray that you would help me this morning as the preacher and keep me dependent on you. Help me to say only those things that are true. And by your mercy, I pray you would impress these truths on our lives so that you can fulfill your purpose in us of transforming us to be more like your beloved son, Jesus. For we ask in his holy name, amen. All right, please be seated. All right, the first thing that we notice is the great confusion. This is what we see in verses 18 and 19. We notice the great confusion surrounding the identity of Jesus. Um, The crowds are not sure who he is. The popular opinion is that he's either John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets of old who was risen. Notice that those are the same three options discussed back in verses 7 and 8. So verses 7 and 8 were part of our text last week, and we said last week we're going to leave those to the side and come back to them today. Notice there in verses 7 and 8, those same three possibilities are given. The language is almost exactly the same. Herod heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some, this is verse 7, said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Okay? So same three options. Who is this Jesus? Well, he's either John the Baptist, he's the prophet Elijah, or he's one of the prophets of old. Now, what's significant about those three options? We've noticed what's there. What's not there? What's not among the options? The significant thing is that according to this account, no one was even raising the possibility that Jesus might be the Christ. 
That was not among the, even among the options. They weren't saying, well, he could be John the Baptist, he could be Elijah, he could be one of the prophets of old, or he could be the Christ. No, that wasn't even an option. They weren't considering that possibility. What does that tell us? tells us something very, very important. It tells us that there was a huge, huge gap between what the people expected from the Messiah and what they were seeing in Jesus. A massive gap. Especially when we remember that when they were looking at John's ministry, the ministry of John the Baptist back in chapter three and trying to figure out who John the Baptist was, the Christ was one of the possibilities they were considering. That's what we read at chapter three, verse 15. The people were considering whether John the Baptist was the Christ. They were all in expectation, considering in their hearts whether he might be the Christ. So Christ was on the table for John. He could be the Christ, But that wasn't even an option under consideration for Jesus because the gap was so large between what the people expected from the Christ and what they saw from Jesus. He did not fit their picture of the Christ or Messiah. It wasn't even close. Now, what was the picture? What did they expect from this coming Messiah, the Christ? One thing that you have to know is that in the first century A.D., there, there wasn't just one school of thought regarding the Messiah. There wasn't just one, one strand that you could easily say that everyone believes the exact same things about who the Messiah will be, okay? There was a, a long, long history and a lot of development over time surrounding who this person was going to be. Their thoughts were shaped by the scriptures. I'll point out some of those in just a minute. Their thoughts were shaped by the rabbi's interpretation of the scriptures over time and the way that that changed. Their thoughts were shaped by other people, other deliverers that came on the scene over all the years in the ways that they delivered Israel and um, what their personality was like and what their goals were and Um, extra-biblical literature also, so stuff that's not in our Bible, but that the communities around the land were were writing and forming their own ideas of what the Messiah was going to be like, and throw all that into a huge pot and mix it up, and so there were all these ideas about who the Messiah was going to be, okay? But even so, even with so much diversity in thought, there are some discernible things that they all had in common. Here are three of them, three expectations of the Messiah that were common, more or less, to, to every school of thought, okay? Number one, the Christ will be a descendant of David. The person we're waiting for is a descendant of David, meaning he's a king. In, in particular, we could go to Isaiah 11 and Micah 5, to support that view. The Christ will be a descendant of David. Something that everyone agreed on. Number two, he will be a political deliverer. He will expel the Gentiles from our land and we will be sovereign once again over our own territory. He's gonna provide a political deliverance. He will be a crusher of the Gentiles. 
freedom and restoration to Israel. We could go to Psalm 2. We could go to Isaiah 11 um, again to find support for that view. So we're looking for a descendant of David. We're looking for a political deliverer. And number three, he will establish the kingdom of God on earth. We could go to Isaiah 9 to find support for that point. He's going to bring in this eternal kingdom of God, which will be marked by peace and righteousness. Okay, so those are the things in general that were expected of the Messiah. We're looking for a kingly descendant of David, a political deliverer, someone who's going to establish the kingdom of God. Those are the baseline expectations. Now, think about who their historical um, heroes were. Think about the people in the history of Israel that they had seen model deliverance for them. People like Joshua and Gideon and Samson and Saul and David and even Solomon and Judas Maccabeus who expelled the Greeks These were great warriors. They were crushers of enemies. They were establishers of kingdoms. And they all shaped expectations for that future Messiah of God who's going to bring in an eternal kingdom. And if all of those guys were like that, how much more must the coming of Messiah fit that mold and be a great warrior and a great crusher of enemies, a great and powerful, impressive king? And I think at this point, we can see clearly why Christ, or Messiah, was not being admitted as an option for Jesus. He was a teacher. He was spending time with people in their homes. He was gentle and lowly in heart. He seemed to be talking favorably about the Gentiles. He seemed to be wanting to include them as beneficiaries of God's kindness. Those are the things that he was doing. Think about the things that he wasn't doing. He wasn't gathering an army. He wasn't gathering guys in huge numbers. He's gathering this small group of diverse guys. Most were fishermen, not warriors. He wasn't teaching about overthrowing Rome and gaining corporate freedom. He was talking about overthrowing Satan and personal repentance. There was a massive gap between what the people expected from the Christ and what they saw in Jesus. And then there's Peter. Peter and the great confession of verse 20. So the first thing we see is the great confusion. Second thing we see in verse 20 is the great confession. Peter doesn't hesitate. He doesn't seem uncertain at all. He's not considering all these options about who Jesus might be. He very simply states, when the point is pressed upon him, he simply states, Jesus, you are the Christ of God. Let's talk about this confession, okay? There's a lot that we could say about his confession. By the way, a confession, 
doesn't mean like Peter's confessing that he did something wrong. Sometimes confession is used in that sense. This is simply a statement of belief. Peter's stating what he believes to be true. And we call that a confession. And let's limit ourselves to just two things about this confession that we can apply to our own lives and thinking, okay? This great confession in verse 20 that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ of God. First thing that we can notice about it is the importance of the issue. The importance of the issue of Jesus' identity. And this is what I mean by that. Up until this point of the gospel, it would be very easy for a reader to think, hey, this Christianity thing is, is really just a way of life. A- apparently, being a Christian means being um, super helpful to people. Um, it means being kind. It means um, loving your enemies. It means uh, forgiving. It means feeding people. Um, this whole Christian endeavor um, is a way of life, modeled on the life of Jesus. That's what Christianity is. It means I live a certain way, I hold to a certain moral ethic of being generally kind and helpful. But here, in this text, we see Jesus press the question of his identity. He initiates this conversation He wants to talk about and clarify his identity. What conclusion can we draw from that? We draw the conclusion that his identity is crucial. It's not just his teaching that's crucial. His identity is crucial. Think about it. If Jesus is only teaching a better way to live, his identity isn't of much consequence. It certainly isn't worth taking the time to strictly charge his disciples to not tell anyone who he is. Why would that be necessary if if his identity wasn't crucial? Who Jesus is is crucial to Christianity and to the kingdom of God. Christianity is not simply a way of life. Christianity is a new life founded on a confession of faith that Jesus is the Christ of God and all that that means that he is savior deliverer redeemer authoritative ruler eternal king a a great many people on this planet may follow what we would call a Christian pattern of life in terms of kindness Helpfulness, thoughtfulness, generosity, that does not make a person a Christian. A Christian is someone who stands justified before God on the basis of their confession of faith that Jesus is the Christ, God's only Son. Christianity is founded on a confession of of faith. There is a way of life that flows from that confession. We're going to talk about that next week as we get into the famous verses 23 through 27. There is a cross-shaped way of life that flows from that confession and marks a Christian. But that way of life 
flows from the confession and is founded on the confession and empowered by the confession. And that's why Jesus presses home the matter of his identity, who he is, before he tells them who a disciple is. So Christianity is, first of all, confessional. It's what we confess is true of God, of Christ, of ourselves. It's the foundation of our lives, okay? Jesus presses the point so we know it must be important. Here's the second thing that we could say about the confession. We talk about the importance of the issue. We could also talk about the the difficulty of belief, Okay, I'll tell you what I, I mean by that. So we have the importance of the issue of Jesus' identity. The second thing that we are going to talk about is the difficulty of belief. I'll tell you what I mean. I just mean that Peter overcomes lots of obstacles to make this confession. Jesus is probably not what he expected the Messiah to be. Jesus may not be what he hoped the Messiah would be. Jesus may not be prioritizing the things that Peter would prioritize for the good of Israel. Jesus may very well be the opposite of what Peter would have expected or chosen or desired for the Messiah of Israel. And if that's true, he would be in very good company. Nearly all the people feel the same. Judas will eventually reveal by his actions that he feels the same. As Jesus continues to talk about death and suffering and being mocked and killed, as Jesus keeps saying that this is what Messiahship will be like, that's not something Judas can handle It's not what he expected. It's not what he wants for himself or for his nation. And so he walks away from the leader in the movement. Okay? All of those expectations Peter puts to the side. All of those expectations and desires. He overcomes all of those obstacles and confesses, you are the Christ of God. Now let's talk about ourselves and the world that we live in, okay? In our current context, you know as well as I that it is, it is impossible for the main two camps to get any further apart from each other. Polarized, divided, whatever word you want to use, no one can agree on anything. Couldn't be further apart. But there is one thing that nearly everyone is in full agreement on. Did you know that? There's one thing that nearly everyone in this context will sign on to, and that is this. No one, almost no one, tiny, 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 tiny percentage, no one wants the Christ that's revealed in the Gospels. This is not who we want him to be. The the Jesus of the Gospels, the Jesus that's the Christ of God, is not who we want. This is simply not the Christ that we want. The Christ that is revealed in the Gospels, and in particular here in Luke 9, is a Christ that is both authoritative and humiliated. 
He's authoritative because, because he is the Christ of God. He's the Davidic king. He's the eternal king. He is humiliated because he will, according to verse 22, suffer many things and be rejected and be killed. The Christ of God, Jesus, is both authoritative and humiliated. And this is the Christ whom the masses will not have. One camp will accept a humiliated Christ, but they will never accept an authoritative Christ. Someone with moral authority over them to define right and wrong, to command obedience to a very narrow path, they will accept a lifestyle Christ, they will accept an impotent Christ, they will accept a good teacher Christ, a good example Christ, even a humiliated Christ, but not an authoritative Christ. Never. Jesus will not rule over them. The other camp is happy to receive an authoritative Christ, but will never receive a humiliated Christ. Someone who allows himself to be bound by the authorities, who submits to beatings and mockings, entrusting himself to the will of God, who displays meekness and gentleness, who lives for the glory of another kingdom, a future kingdom, who calls his followers to be submissive, to obey the authorities instituted by God over them, who calls his followers to lose now and display perfect courtesy toward all people, to turn the other cheek, to bless those who curse you and commit ourselves to good works? What? Who wants to do that? Who wants to appear weak in the eyes of the world? Who wants to give up power in this world with the hope that there's another world coming and that's where we're going to see glorification? To bank on that future world? Who wants to give up power in this world in order to display the spiritual power of the Holy Spirit? Isn't it better to assert dominance in the name of Christ now? We may be his followers, but we won't be seen as weak and as humiliated. We won't have an authoritative Christ because no one wants to obey. We won't have a humiliated Christ because no one wants to lose. And so we jettison the Christ of the Gospels. We won't have that combination both authoritative and humiliated, we cannot handle that combination. Now, before we get too down on ourselves, and before you get too down on the preacher who's speaking into our current context, let's realize that those dynamics have always been present. They were, we can see them in the Gospels. They've always been present. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel, they would not have him as an authority over them. That's the one thing they were always talking about. Where did you get this authority? We're not gonna have that. You are not gonna be an authority over us. 
And as for the crowds and even one of his own disciples, like, I am not following this path of humiliation. If this road we're on is not leading to a glorious kingdom for Israel now, I am out of here. I'm going to sell you out. I'm going to cut the best deal I can and walk away. The same two dynamics were present when Jesus walked the earth and they've always been present. They're still here today. Nearly everyone of all times and places can agree that the authoritative, humiliated Christ, the Christ of the Gospels, is not who we want. The Christ of man, a Christ of man's own invention, would look very different from the Christ of God. And then there's this very, very tiny portion of the population who's represented very well by Peter here, Peter's the lone voice. There's this tiny portion of the population that's willing to confess this authoritative, soon-to-be-humiliated person is the very Christ of God. I want you to look at the words in verse 20. If you have a copy of the scriptures, look at the actual words. Notice that he is the Christ of God. Not who we want him to be. This is the Christ of God. Jesus is the Christ of God. And while not the Christ that we would choose, he is the Christ who we need. He doesn't suffer and die because he's weak. He suffers and dies because he's strong and we're weak. And we need an authoritative and powerful redeemer from our sin. In the end, the question is really this, for you and for me. Are you willing to be led by a leader who is leading you downward in this life and only upward in the life to come? Are you willing to be led by by a leader who's leading you downward in this life before leading you upward in the next? And most people say no, either because they won't be led or because they won't go downward. No one wants to obey and no one wants to lose. But what do you say? Who do you say that he is? You know, it's, it's so interesting and it's so understandable that the very next thing that happens in, in the text, only eight days later, is the transfiguration. Jesus completes the picture for them because they're not just left here at this point to think, okay, authoritative, humiliated, like that's all there is. No, that's not all there is. The very next thing that happens is he leads them up to the Mount of Transfiguration where they see with their own eyes the true glory that belongs to Jesus. Like the story has humiliation in it, but it doesn't end with humiliation. This is the glorified Christ. This is who he really is, okay? Same pattern is true for us. Humiliation is part of the journey, but it's not the end of the journey. It ends with glorification. And we're going to see all that in the next few weeks as we talk about the transfiguration. Today we're just talking about the importance of his identity and the relative difficulty of accepting Jesus as he really is.
the authoritative and humiliated Christ of God. Now, very, very quickly, I just want to say something about the great, this great mystery at the end of the passage. Like, why does Jesus say, don't tell anybody? <laughs> so we've got the great confusion, we've got the great confession, and we've got what I'm just calling the great charge. Don't say anything to anybody. I was just talking about this with my wife Molly the other day. Like, what's going on? Like, what, and this isn't the only place that we see it. This is all through the Gospels. Don't tell anybody. Cast the demon out. Don't tell anybody. What's happening here? According to verse 21, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. So Peter gives the right answer. You are the Christ of God. Very next words, don't tell anybody. Strictly charged them. Strictly charged and commanded A little bit redundant, but that shows the importance of the issue. Don't say anything. Why? Three points, very quickly. Number one, we don't know for sure. We don't know. This has been a huge debate through the last 20 centuries, particularly in the 20th century. Why this secret? Scholars are still debating this. We don't know. There's lots of theories out there, okay? All we can do is speculate. But I will tell you, second point, I'll tell you what my view is. In my view, the most likely reason for commanding silence to not proclaim Jesus as the Christ is that it would have caused great misunderstanding among both the Romans and the Jews. Both groups, Gentiles and Jews, okay, Romans and Jews, both groups would have heard those words, Christ of God, and assumed that what that meant was a here and now kingdom, that Jesus is after a here and now kingdom. He wants to rule now in this place, which was the Jews' greatest hope and the Romans' greatest fear. No one, no one in Rome wanted that. That's what all of the Jews wanted. No one could fathom that he wouldn't be after a here and now kingdom. Who could fathom that the Messiah would come and chase down a cross? They couldn't possibly understand that yet. And so to the the best of my ability, all I can figure is that Jesus must have decided that the open proclamation of the gospel was a greater priority than an open proclamation of his identity. That if his true identity were to be proclaimed as the Christ, it would have made the proclamation of the kingdom impossible or very, very difficult both for him and for his disciples, okay? I think that might be about the best we can do trying to figure out why. Third point is just to recognize that this great charge to not say anything has been replaced and superseded. The great charge has been replaced with the great commission. Don't tell anyone has been replaced by go and tell everyone That Jesus is the Christ of God, the authoritative, humiliated, now glorified King. Go tell everybody. Amen. Lord, thank you for this truth. We celebrate it. And by your grace, we apply it. It is, it is sweet to the soul to hear the confession, Jesus, you are the Christ of God. We may not have chosen it. We may not understand it. But we just want to come to you and say, Father, this is the Christ that we need. The powerful one who is willing to to lay down his power to suffer and die because we had a sin debt that we couldn't pay. 
but he in all his perfections, the blessed Lamb of God, would lay himself down for us. So we praise his name today. Thank you for another day and other suns rising to sing his glories. Amen.